Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast spoiler special. This one is dedicated to Nia DaCosta's Jordan Peele-produced reboot quill of one of the most memorable movie monsters of the 1990s, Candyman. Say his name, you mothers. No, actually don't, don't. We can't be having with a hook-handed maniac running around the place. Not again. Not again. No, absolutely not. Ugh, it's horrible the last time. Blood everywhere. Took ages to clean it up. Oh well, we'll miss James. So joining me over the next hour or so, not that much. So joining me over the next hour or so to talk all things Candyman without saying his name five times into a mirror. That's important. Our three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Geek Queen Helen O'Hara. Hello. Resident Frady Cat, Amon Warman. Hello. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to your reaction to this movie. <laughs> and... And Mr. Evolution of Horror himself, Mike Munzer. Hello. Hello, hello. How are we all? Okay. Do you want to talk about it? <laughs> what I want is a badge. I survived the Candy Man experience. Sorry, the Mandy Can experience as I will be the, the first one uh, on this podcast. <laughs> I think it's useful if you say can D dot man. So like his first name was Can. First name Can, is- initial D. <laughs> initial D, last name man. man. Yeah. Related to and- Michael, perhaps. Yes, because I think we're going to get into the the rules of the Candyman summoning at some point during this podcast, right? Because, you know, it's a little bit like that scene in Gremlins 2 where they really dig into the rules of the Gremlins. Like what happens if you're, you know, crossing time zones? What happens if you have, if you eat something before midnight, but it gets caught in your teeth and then falls out of your teeth and then you swallow <laughs> it after midnight? Does that still count? All that stuff. So we'll, we'll get into it as well with the Candyman. But before we get into that, Mike here... Or is he? There he is. Um, <laughs> Mr. Evolution of Horror himself. Listen to that podcast. It is most excellent, especially listen to the episodes I'm on. Oh uh, actually stepped up to the plate. I don't know whether it was a literal plate or a metaphorical plate, but it was a plate nonetheless. And spoke to the wonderful Nia DaCosta recently about all manner of spoilerific things. I haven't listened back to that interview yet, Mike. Uh, so what did you talk about? What, what, what was the good stuff? Oh, I had so many questions and including questions about the rules, like you just mentioned, Chris, about... How how do you call him? When is it valid? When is it not valid? Um, so yeah, Nia uh, tried her best to answer some of those questions <laughs> that I had. <laughs> how does it work? What what what, what is it? Yeah, he's got a hook for hand. How does that work? Does it have to be the left hand or the right hand? Uh, anyway, here is Mike having a good old natter with Nia DaCosta. Do please enjoy. Okay, welcome to the Empire Podcast, Nia DaCosta. Hello, Nia. Hi, how are you? Really good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. A little sick, so I'm sorry I to sound hear that. A bit raspy, but I'm I'm here for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I would love to jump in with some spoilery, sort of plot-specific questions, if that's all right. Um, and I guess Please. I just want to start off by asking you a bit about, I suppose, the reveal in this movie that we've not just got the one Candyman, right? It's not just Tony Todd; mm. it's multiple Candymen from sort of different mm. generations, which I thought was mm. such a fascinating twist on the story. Just tell me a little bit about the decisions, I suppose, when coming up with this story and kind of what kind of mm. spurred you to want to make that decision it was oh man i think if i'm remembering correctly the original script i don't think had that kernel of an idea in it but what it did have was the idea that anthony himself will, would become Candyman in the end of the film and that really that really spoke to me because i was like oh that's so great because i really want to humanize <laughs> um or not necessarily humanize but like talk about the fact that these people that we create into that we make into martyrs or or monsters are, are humans first of all um and then as we were like developing and you know i was in chicago and we were just like trying to figure out um how to expand on the original story it came about i'm not i can't remember exactly how but it was um 
I think, I, man, I don't know. It's just what happens when you have a great brain trust, you know, <laughs> we get to work with great people. But I think it really just came from, at least for me, it was about making sure we talked about the fact that this was um, cyclical and the history repeats itself. And this isn't just an incident that happened to one guy named Anna Robotai, but it's actually um, an environment in which we live that, that allows for these things to happen over and over again. It feels like it really speaks to the themes of the movie. I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about those themes and what you were, um, what you were saying with this story in terms of the idea of black legacy, but also black monsters in the horror genre, I suppose. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I guess for me, it was really about that legend building, you know, storytelling and how through, throughout history, we, we create stories in order to, to soothe our collective trauma. It's how we kind of collectively decide what we should be afraid of, um, what we should warn our children about. It's how we protect ourselves from others by maybe scaring them away from our community to protect our community. Jordan always says, you know, the, um, the, the, the monster of the film is actually storytelling, it's stories. Mm. Um, and so, and that always struck me. Then I also just wanted to, I don't know, bring other stories of trauma and, and horrible sort of happenings to the fore because so much of the movie is about black pain, white violence, racial violence, and, um, and how we kind of move forward through it in order to try to live our lives. I always felt like the the character of the original Candyman, Tony Todd's Candyman, he was mm. sort of equal parts sort of terrifying, but also quite majestic, right? There was some mm. something something very sort of attractive about him at the same time. Tell me a little yeah. bit about designing um, the other Candymen in this movie. I mean, particularly the one that we've seen quite a lot throughout quite a lot of the film is the one that's kind of set up in the opening scene, right? This Sherman character mm-hmm. from the 1970s yeah. who terrifying in this movie uh, when he sort of pops up oh, at various moments but tell me about decisions in kind of designing that particular candy man it was really fun because um something jordan and i talked a lot about we're like okay so what are the iconic sort of pieces you need to keep from a visual point of view and then i was kind of digging into like okay what sort of horrible happenings um can we uh, lend uh, from the real world to a couple of these other candy men um sherman's completely invented. He's the one I think more closely tied to the original Candyman legend. You know, he worked in a candy factory. He had a prosthetic hand, which was, which wasn't shaped like a hook, but was really because you could, you know, pick things up in an easier way. Um, and so we kind of were like, okay, so Sherman had the hook. He worked at the candy factory and then the, an, a candy man before that um, he had, he had the jacket and then a candy man before that he had, you know, this or that, or, you know, it wasn't bees necessarily, but it was, you know, this guy wore a black and black and yellow, like sweat sweater, you know, just like, how can we take all these people that we introduced in, in the movie who eventually become candy man and what parts of their story are we saying created this sort of legend that belongs to, to all of them, but also none of them at the same time. There were some incredibly creepy moments that really got under my skin when we will see glimpses of him in reflections mm. or in the background. Tell me a little bit about how you uh, directed uh, sort of creating scares, I suppose, in this movie. Because it mm. seemed to me that it didn't have lots of the sort of traditional jump scares. You went for slightly other tactics in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I really wanted it to be eerie and psychological, not necessarily sort of a jump scare movie. I think we have a couple of jump scares, but really I wanted it to be the horror to build sort of slowly um, and, and to sort of mirror the, the real life horrors with the um, sort of concocted 
ghost demon, um, whatever you want to call Candyman, uh, sort of slasher horror. So yeah, so it was a lot about mirrors, a lot about like seeing things and not seeing things or something hiding in plain sight, which we tend to do with Sherman and, and the reflections a lot. Um, and then also just in how we depicted the violence, it was, it was less about like, oh, okay, this person's dead now or this person's getting carotid um, or carotid. <laughs> Yeah, garroted. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's like we know what's gonna happen. Like from the time they say the fifth Candyman, we're just like waiting, and so that anticipa- anticipation for me is much scarier than you know seeing someone get disemboweled. How come Candyman? Like with some characters, he, he, he they say the name five times and he appears instantly, right? And they're dead. Other mm-hmm. times, it's something else, something more insidious, something more gradual. You know, did you kind of yeah. did you or you and Jordan or whatever come up with kind of rules? for this particular candy man so the biggest rule shift i would say from the first film is basically that we're saying like the reason why sherman's only inside the mirror initially is because you know he's uh, you know the original the og candy man danny robotai he's been like sort of vanquished by helen um and it's not until he's like reborn inside anthony's body that he can now be flesh and blood and then just become danny robotai again <laughs> essentially <laughs> yeah. um but um but really i mean good luck trying to come up with a solid like consistent <laughs> Uh, rules for Candyman because we were looking at the first film and I remember we were like, wait, so Bernadette said it here, but she doesn't die until all the way over here. And then this guy, he said it, he didn't say it all at once. He wasn't looking in the mirror, but he, you know, like it was, and so we kind of were just like, okay, that gives us license to sort of use this um, in a way that's useful for us, but also isn't like too crazy. So, you know, the things that matter, you say it five times, that's the key. I know, right? I've always like, oh, so if somebody stood next to them, are they going to get killed too? Or if you mm-hmm, say mm-hmm. it three times, but then like a week later, say it another two, is it going to happen yeah, 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 then? Yeah. You know, it's all those things you yeah. kind of can't help but think about. Does it have to be the same mirror? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, so- what is the mirror? What is the reflection? You know, <gasps> yeah. Oh my God. And speaking of, you know, there were reflections and mirrors in what felt like almost every shot in this movie, which I loved as well, mm-hmm. because it was constantly kind of glancing around at what was going on in the frame any given moment. Mm-hmm. Just as a director, though, that must have been a bit of a logistical nightmare right working with so many mirrors and reflections just everywhere on every oh, set oh yeah it was <laughs> terrible um i mean it was awesome but it was also like so hard yeah and then you know we did previs a lot we did a lot of previs so that we could try to make sure we knew um like what the reflection would actually be especially for sherman since he like lives inside the mirror mm. we're like okay is he a reflection or is he in the mirror like the right way around like it was so much <laughs> so much like trying to figure that out so it was it was really hard i loved the little cameo of tony todd at the end there of the mm-hmm. movie um tell yeah. me a little bit about that was there ever any thought into bringing tony todd back as the sort of the main candy man or was that never an option mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that oh yeah no um we definitely knew uh tony todd would be involved in some way um in a very specific way which is basically what we did um we thought like kind of the the best way because also you know so interesting everyone's like you have to bring him back you have to bring helen back and it's like well they both aren't allowed to age uh (laughs) because they're both ghosts so that's like immediately like the trickiest thing about it you know what i mean um but also again we we knew that we were going to expand it we knew it was going to be about anthony and the baby from the original film um and that was very intentional from the very beginning um but I think, you know, like the bad version is like some weird cameo. Like he's a guy buying art in the gallery, but it's like, no, Dan, uh, Tony Todd is Danny Robitaille, is Candyman. And so we knew that's what he had to be in the film. 
I love it. Um, and, you know, his you do see glimpses of him in things like paintings and everything, right, as well. Mm. His sort of memory is living on there in, in the periphery. Um, mm. And it did seem to me that among all of the other themes this movie's tackling, there is there is a kind of satire of the art world going on here as well, right? Oh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, about what you were saying about creating art surrounding these kind of topics. So it's really funny, like, I guess as an artist, as a filmmaker, like some of the stuff Anthony deals with, I deal with too. So it's like, it was really fun to write some of those exchanges. Um, and then our producer, Ian Cooper, was was like a sculptor, top sculptor at NYU up until pretty recently. And um, he, so he had so much, so many amazing gems uh, to, to give to, to the movie and to the actors and context for everyone. It was, so that ended up being really, really fun. Um, and also sort of the most personal part for me <laughs> of the movie. That's really interesting. I suppose it, it, did you personally have a um, have a kind of feel a connection to characters like Anthony in this movie in terms of that stuff, mm-hmm. in terms of being an artist and what it's like to be in that world? I suppose. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Anthony, Brianna, definitely, mm-hmm. um, definitely have that experience. You know, or are moving into a, a neighborhood that's gentrifying. Had that experience. You know, um, or trying to make art, but the people who control the money, especially when making art about black people, are all white. You know, that sort of weird dynamic that I think most black artists work in. Yeah, all of that was very, very familiar to me. Um, speaking of Brianna, I loved the way in which this, the story did kind of shift, right? It feels like at the beginning, mm. we're very much an Anthony story. And then by the mm. end, it almost feels like, oh, Brianna is our protagonist now, right? And, yeah. um, tell me a little bit about how you kind of achieved that and what decisions you you put into creating that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So that was intentional. That was there from the very beginning. And for me, it was like, there's with storytelling, you have to have someone who, who who's the witness and Brianna was always going to be the witness. Mm-hmm. And I think with Candyman in particular, um, part of like the sort of talking about rules, I think part of the dynamic is like, you need a witness. So like even in the first film, you have all these people at the very end who actually see what really happened with Helen, but that doesn't stop her story from turning into something crazy. And it's almost from this hearsay, this sort of um, game of telephone that things turn into you know, what we, what we hear, um, her ex's girlfriend talk about, you know, at the, at the, um, at the end of the film. So, so Brianna had to become the main character or more clearly become the main character, like kind of halfway through the film, because she's just as important as Candyman. She's the witness. And there's some really interesting dynamics at play between those two, right? I mean, it felt to me Mm. at times, this was also a story about a kind of frustrated man I suppose in a way who kind Mm -hmm. of may or may not like not really had any success in the last couple of years and was kind of that pressure uh, of of him and his extremely successful partner was kind of weighing on his shoulders a little bit as well right oh for sure yeah and then like her brother is like on his case and he just feels (laughs) kind of like a failure and and but then you know when when his uh when his gallerist comes and he's sort of like asking him essentially to exploit um his community for the benefit of the gallery, you know, you kind of understand why he's been having difficulty creating because, you know, what is authentic if, if someone else tries to tell you what your story is. So, so yeah. And I love that dynamic between the two of them for that very reason. Oh, I love, uh, you know, I was, I remember being quite surprised when I first saw the original Candyman. I think I went into Mm. it thinking it was going to be a kind of typical sort of slasher film, I suppose, almost like a sort of teen slasher. And it's, it's not that it's something very different in a way. Um, And it feels, and obviously it's the same with your movie, but you are adding elements of kind of the teen slasher in there, I think, particularly with like the sort of the, the, the scene with the high school girls, et cetera. Um, Just tell me a little bit about that and kind of you're balancing a lot of different, I suppose, sort of subgenres of horror, aren't you, all within this story? 
For sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is something I found so fascinating when revisiting Candyman as an adult and also talking to people about it, talking to people about it, because I feel like people remember the movie differently than it actually was. Right. So everyone's like, yeah, scariest movie I've ever seen. Crazy. They remember it being some crazy high key slasher jump scares, et cetera, et cetera. When you watch it as an adult, you're like, oh, wait, that's not at all. It's not Saw. You know what I mean? No <laughs> like, way. No. And so um, so for me, it was really important to stay true to like the the tone of the original film in terms of being really a psychological thriller, weird art film mm-hmm. thing that was happening with, you know, terribly gory murders, but also wanted to be kind of cheeky about it and add those elements. Because there's like, you know, the very first scene of, of Candyman is sort of like a teen slasher yeah. moment as well. So we definitely wanted to make sure we had we had our own. Yeah, the, the, that, that's it. I think uh, the film, the original film, it's that opening scene that lures you into thinking, oh, it's going to be that type of film. And then it's something entirely yeah. different, isn't it? And yeah. um, what I loved about your film is it, it kind of dabbles in and out of those sorts of particular genres mm-hmm. as it goes. We've also got that really interesting character played by Coleman Domingo, right? And that kind of twist i suppose at the end in terms of him kind of mm. aiding the creation of this new mm. Candyman, i suppose in anthony's yeah. character tell me a little bit about that and creating that particular character played by coleman i think with with um with william burke it was about how do we really like really show like the creation of a legend mm. and how it happens and and so he's sort of our shortcut to that he is the one who who has his pain and his trauma and so we understand why it's important to him to to create this this legend to create this monster um or this hero or this um this avenger not in the marvel sense obviously but in the pure sense of the actual <laughs> <division of> word <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so and so it's sort of it's like sort of a more exaggerated version of why any individual after a terrible death of someone um in the public eye, like has to create a narrative around it. How, how, how do you survive with this constant trauma? How do you live with it? I think for William, it was, um, it was to create this, this, um, this entity or to recreate or bring it back. And so that was always for me, really exciting about his character and, and that part of the movie. Cause it really, <laughs> Scott, something I really love about the film. It's like, you're watching this sort of psychological thriller, like, you know, romance sort of, drama uh art movie and then the last third it really goes off the rails it's really like with this unhinged it's incredible which i love so um yeah i always (laughs) i always found that really fun well do you know what if if i had one complaint about the film and it's not really a complaint but Mm -hmm. i wanted more like i could have watched an extra 30 minutes of this to to kind of see a little bit more of like of 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 these these characters um was there ever a longer story originally did you have to cut Mm. it down at all or was it always this story Oh, it was always a story. I mean, there's a longer version of the film for sure mm. that I, you know, would have done by myself, like, <laughs> like a little art nerd. <laughs> it could have been like 20 yes. minutes longer, um, which, um, you know, I have my sensibilities. Jordan and Monkey Paw have theirs. And I think um, between the two, you know, I'm really proud of what we did. But there's definitely a longer version of the film that's a little has uh, that's a little more measured and a little more uh, contemplative oh, <laughs> and want- maybe a little weirder as well. Oh, I want, I want, I want the director's cut someday, Nia. <laughs> oh, no. no, this is the director's cut. I also did want, I did, I was kind of, 
I knew going into it, I had to kind of taper that down for myself. So I was committed to doing like a 90 minute movie. I thought that was going to be really important. Sure. Finally, I just want to ask you about the ending, that incredibly Mm. powerful and harrowing ending um, Mm. with the killing of the cops in the car as Mm. well. Um, Tell me a little bit about creating that scene. And also, obviously, you know, this was a couple of years ago. I know that obviously there's been delays and there's been a lot that's happened, Mm. particularly involving the black people and the police last year. And I just wondered, you Mm -hmm. know, had any of that changed for you in the context of what happened last year yeah um so yeah we didn't make any changes uh based on what happened last summer and i think for me at least um what happened last summer happened in terms of like the 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 murder of george floyd and Mm -hmm. and and um uh, brown taylor like that all happens all the time and like i was like seven the first time i understood that was just a constant sort of um horrible thing that happens um Mm -hmm. so so yeah, so for me, I, I wasn't trying to make any changes, but I think what I what it did do for me was just kind of confirm what I wanted the entire time, which was to be careful not to, you know, be sort of crass with with the actual real world trauma that we were talking about. Yeah, so I uh, it's it's funny uh, that scene. <laughs> I kind of was like. Uh, we shot over three nights kind of going back, you know, to do different, doing it different ways. But the way we shot on the first night was the way it happened. Cause I always knew exactly what that scene was going to be. I think there was some concern <laughs> from other corners that didn't really concern me, but I'm happy that I got to retain what I wanted, which was, was the scene as you see it. It was a lot of communication with my actors. Cause you know, it's fake, but they still have to, you know, like Tiana still has to be like hassled by a bunch of white dudes, yeah. you know, into a car and, and Yaya still has to lie on the floor and, you know, die, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and Tiana has to sit there with him and live in the reality of this horrible thing. And, um, and it's really harrowing and it's hard and, and it's not real, but it is um, triggering, you know? Um, so, so yeah, it was a lot of, um, like, how do we take care of each other in the moment to like create this thing that we know is going to have a bigger impact outside of this? And, um, how do we stay truthful and, and honest? Brilliant. Nia, we're out of time already. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. And that was Nia DeCosta. And now it is time for us to dig deep into the can D full stop man. Uh, we're going to start as ever with our general feelings about the film before digging a little deeper into it and its themes and the moments that we liked and the moments maybe, I don't know, maybe that you disliked. I don't know. Uh, but I will say this before you start. I think with this movie, you can see if you hadn't already noticed with her debut, Little Woods, that Nia DaCosta is a serious directorial talent to be reckoned with. She has one heck of an eye and you can see why. Kevin Feige and Marvel snapped her up to direct the Marvels because she directs the hell out of this. 100%. 100%. Like, I, I think even in reviews that I've read that don't like the film, they have found time to mention that visually this film is stunning. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that we will be referring back to that many times uh, during this chat. Uh, but yeah, I, I liked it. Again, this is something that we're going to get into more detail on. The jump scares are few and far between, but I did sort of feel scared, shock. And because, <laughs> because, because, you know, there's a very sort of unsettling vibe to everything. And I think that sense of dread only increases as it, as the film speeds towards its conclusion. I love the fact that Yaya has stepped up to leading man status. And I think he's great. He's obviously been doing great work in supporting capacities for the past few years, but this is the first time when he's front and center leading man. And the way he charts Anthony's journey 
I think mm-hmm. is just great. He, he, it's interesting. And in Get Out and Us and Now and This, all the lead actors have gotten the chance to do like a thousand yard stare. I want to sort of see all of them matched up against each other, but Yaya gets to do that as well. And he's really great. I think overall, I really, really liked it. I do think that it is, you know, 90 minutes long. I know that we've spoken before about how we like that length, but I do feel like uh, we could have used a few more minutes to flesh a few things out. Mm-hmm. But overall, uh, I'm a big fan. All right. Who's next? Hellspells, what did you think? Yeah, um, pretty much agree. I, I was also scared because Amon and I often sit next to each other so we can like scream at each other instead of disturbing other people with our <laughs> you know, cowardice. Um, and and rightly so. Um, so I thought I just thought it was incredibly stylish just from the opening, which is a sort of inversion of the 1992 mm-hmm. opening. There you had, you know, the helicopter shop sort of looking down on the Chicago streets. Here you have what I guess is a drone shot looking up into the fog shrouded skyscrapers it's just i don't know i do know why it's so scary it's so scary because it's a really cool image but it's that music that really really gets under your skin and really unsettles you from the get-go i think the music throughout is absolutely incredible that's by robert ike Aubrey low i believe correct incredible incredible score and And even when there was nothing actually technically terrifying on screen, I was still terrified, I think, because of because of the direction and because of of the music. Um, Yeah, just just brilliantly, brilliantly shot. Very, very well acted. As you say, it's great to see Yaya step up to to leading man status. And it was great to see the way that this wove Candyman mythology in with the, the this new story. So the like. I am so non-clued up. I did not put together Anthony and McCoy and make Anthony McCoy until about halfway through the film when it became obvious to everyone because they explained it. So well done me for not remembering uh, the, the original film well enough. But like that kind of thing, that kind of texture just added to the film and I thought worked really, really brilliantly. And Mike, as as King Horror, what did you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I obviously loved it. I thought it was a, uh, I thought it was wonderful. I kind of echo everything you guys said. I think it looks stunning, and it doesn't rely on jump scares too much, but it does rely on that really creepy thing where you sort of, uh, a little bit like Mike Flanagan does in things like The Haunting of Hill House, where if you kind of you're looking at a room for long enough, suddenly you'll see a sort of figure in the background or sort of something in a mirror in a very kind of low key, terrifying way. And Nia DaCosta did such an amazing job, I think, with creating really scary visuals. Like that um and yeah i think it also works it's one of those weird sequel reboot movies right like they did this with halloween and various others they kind of they make it a sequel but they call it the same title as the first one but it does it's so confusing (laughs) but it does work really well as a sequel i think i I think i keep telling people to go and give the original a rewatch before watching this one because i think you you get even more out of it right when you sort of find those little connections between uh, characters and moments in the first one. Yeah, I um, wish it had been fresher in my mind. You're right. Yeah, it's really, it, and that's really great. And I think, you know, the other thing about the original that people almost forget about is I think people think of it as this kind of slasher monster movie about this boogeyman that jumps out on people in the mirror or whatever. And it's not, it's actually much more of a kind of slow burn psychological mm horror about this woman helen and what she goes through so i think it kind of really continues in that vein um yeah Mm. my only quibble and amon you said it i i I could have done with more and i never say this about movies i never (laughs) usually want movies to be longer but this was so packed with ideas 
and ambition that I could have actually, yeah, let it breathe a little bit longer. I could have done with 15, 20 minutes more on this runtime, I think, because it felt a bit rushed, particularly in the in the last act, I'd say. Yeah, the last act are, are character turns that seem to come out of nowhere. Yes. It's interesting because uh, it, it starts with Coleman Domingo's character, William Burke, as a, as a young kid, which is mm. which is interesting. So clearly it's setting him up as a, as a big character rather than the Basil Exposition figure that I think we all thought he was. <laughs> But even so, his, there's a couple of things that, that just feel accelerated to me. One is his descent into madness, which I think maybe could have done with a, an, an extra bridging scene, perhaps. And then Anthony's journey as well. There are a couple of things that I think you always have to suspend disbelief about Anthony's journey. Yes, he does go to the doctor about 20 minutes after I'm internally screaming, screaming at the screen <laughs> going, go to the doctor for the love of God, mate. That Look at your hand. That is not good. How not is normal. no one else noticing mm. how bad his hand looks? What are you doing? Your neck is turning into honeycomb. Go see someone for the love of God. <laughs> but he does go to see the doctor, which is good. But then, you know, that fugue state that we find him in at the church it seems like there's a big gap between the last time we saw him and then next time we see him, which is when he's basically no longer in possession of himself. And I felt that if we're going into that sort of Brundlefly type approach for, for Anthony, we maybe needed to see more of that metamorphosis for that to truly fly. Yeah, you maybe no just need, I mean, you could have done just one little scene, I feel like, in between almost. Yeah. Just mm. showing him marching across town with that thousand yard stare, as Amon says. <laughs> mm. I can only imagine how many edits this film has gone through during this massive delay because it was meant to come out June 2020. And yeah. I get the sense that it's been tinkered with a little bit since I then. Don't, I don't know that it's been tinkered with because they just had nothing to do and they were just you know, <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, I've got a bit of spare time now. I might tinker with the Candyman again. I, I, do, I do wonder how much how much interference there was or how many or how much studio suggestion, shall we say, there was to make it more of a conventional horror film. It would be fascinating to know how much pressure was brought to bear on on Nia DaCosta to to make it much more your your kind of common a garden horror film. This the sequence that really stands out to me is the massacre in the bathroom. Yeah. Which was in the first trailer. Mm. And <laughs> you know, that that seemed to suggest that that's that's what this movie was going to be. It was going to reinvent the idea of Candyman more as a as a slasher rather than what he is or what he can be, which is a writer of wrongs and a, and a, and a vessel for black pain and you know, injustice. We'll get into that, obviously, as, as we go along. But that slasher sequence is really good, but it feels like it's in a different movie entirely. But then that does tie into, you know, the 92 film and yeah. certainly some of the sequels, mm. you know, where he is not we'll ignore just... The sequels. Yeah, I, I've never heard. Uh, you know, but he—he he is not just a writer of. In fact, he's not a writer of wrongs. No, he's not at all. He's in not. the first mm -hmm. one, it's—it's it's all about. He's not you know, Robin Hood, that's for sure. Yeah, you have called me up. <laughs> therefore, now I have to spill innocent blood. Like that's my job now. Oh, so he's evil. He's absolutely yeah, so evil. So there's in the no. First one. There's no question. So I think there's, if anything, his his reputation has been rehabilitated. I think by this, where he does, for the most part, go after Badens more. Um, I mean, you know, mm. the, the whole Anthony thing is more like a Jeepers Creepers, spoiler, uh, thing where mm. he's, you know, looking for a new recruit, as it were, looking for new parts. But the but the rest of the killing, many of them are, are 
semi-justified in a very, very loose and non-legal sense. Oh my God, this is not <laughs> yeah, me giving yeah, my legal opinion. Yeah. That person criticised my work, therefore they must <laughs> Yeah, have. Not, not so much that. But like, you know, there's there's more of a sense of going after antagonists yes. rather than the innocent <laughs> as his target. It's like Father Ted's whenever he does the acceptance speech for the Golden Cleric and he he basically has a list, two lists of enemies. One is liars, the other one is twats. And it feels to me a little <laughs> bit like Anthony slash Candyman is working his way. He's gone through the liars, now he's moving on to the twats. Yeah. <laughs> but again, what did those schoolgirls do? You know, they didn't quite deserve that, they did they? They said that, yeah. his name. <laughs> yeah, that is... I mean, that, that, is that was one of my biggest laughs in the film. Like, you know, who would do that? Smash cut white woman. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, white women don't come out of this well, which is fine. But um, <laughs> it it did feel a little bit like it was it was harking back to the sort of the urban legend opening of the of the film. So you've got the the baby the classic babysitter yeah. cheating on her boyfriend as well with uh, with <laughs> with a Raimi <laughs> with Ted yes. Raimi yes. <laughs> as a bad boy. Um, but it, you know, it, it, so it, it kind of harked back to the kind of the urban legend thing that initially brought it to Helen Lyle's attention, I guess. Yeah. And it's one of the fundamental questions of we're going to skip the other candy men, by the way. Yeah. We're going to skip Farewell to the Flesh and Day of the Dead and focus purely on the two candy men movies. The two movies called Candyman is, is what we're going to be focusing <laughs> on here. And both of them pose that question, don't they? You know, would you do it? And if so, why would you do it? Why, you know, is it the, the, the risk? Is it basically no one knows, no one thinks it's going to happen, so they just say his name, but. There are reasons to assume in this movie that there might be something to it, possibly. So why would bathroom girl do what she does? I, you know, it's 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 interesting. I'm just shaking my head, like <laughs> stupid, <laughs> stupid. Ugh. Yeah, I was I was so into it. There's this bit is in the trailer, but um, when Anthony goes to visit his mother, she she sort of says like, you know, she starts saying Candyman. He's just like, nope. No, don't do it. I, I, yeah. I, I, was, I was doing the physical hand movements in the actual screen. <laughs> he was, I can confirm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just why? Why I was, would you do it? I was thinking of you all the way through, Liz. As, <laughs> as I do, I'm on quite often when I watch any movie. I, my, my mind, my thoughts, I find myself flitting towards a one woman. It's only correct. I, I, not to give too much away, we usually talk about our squad cast names at the end of the podcast, but Amon's name today simply is Nope, in all <laughs> in caps. Which uh, is, of course, what Brianna says towards the end of the movie when she's presented with a creepy set of stairs leading down to a possibly oh, even creepier cellar. Amazing. Yeah. But I was thinking of you <laughs> constantly throughout this because you, know, you have constantly on this podcast, whenever you're discussing horror films, you have talked about how you would not do half the things that those stupid and let's be honest, mostly white people do in horror movies. And uh, and I was thinking of you when the Troy character yep. was we constantly... We don't need to be summoning shit, Chris. No, we, we do, do not. It. We do not. And I am fully with you on this. Uh, 100% <laughs> with you on this. And I thought it had a really lovely self-aware quality to it as well, which yeah. was really darkly comedic. Yeah. Now that that nope moment in the screening, I when I watched it, there was like seven people in the screening. I didn't care. I was like, thank you. <laughs> Everyone started laughing at me. But uh yeah, it was great. And I love Beyond for that. Her only mistake in this film is not immediately packing a bag and leaving once <laughs> Anthony said Candyman five times. That's her only mistake. Well, and there's also the completely failing to notice that her boyfriend's arm was falling off. That's true. Which I kind of feel like maybe should have come That's to her true. attention at some point. 
<laughs> that yeah. got very bad very quickly, didn't it? it that it oh, was I really unpleasant. I mean, it, there's God. proper body horror in those scenes. Like it's really, yeah. especially when he starts picking at it. Oh God! Oh. Yeah. Did his mother never tell him? Don't pick at it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there, there, there are moments where people do notice when he goes to the the dinner table after the art critic gets killed, mm. and he's at the the you know the big dinner meeting, and he's been told not to fuck up, and he's literally sitting there with a, like a tea towel wrapped around this festering wound that must smell absolutely rank. You don't want to be downwind mm. of him at all. Uh, not that you'd be downwind in a high end Chicago restaurant, and if you are, <laughs> then you've got to ask questions. But <laughs> that's got to sting. That's got to smart. People should yeah. notice these things a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's going to be infected for a start. What's going on? Yeah, there's got to be a spell there. It's it's really gross. I also thought that the restaurant was also riffing on the original Candyman, the scene with the yep. with her awful mm. husband Xander Berkeley and uh, and the sort of thesis advisor, the creep. Yeah. Yes. Similar kind of look to it. But this film's also going for a kind of like art world satire mm. a bit as well isn't it like a kind of velvet buzzsaw kind of yeah. vibe as well and that was one of the maybe one of the things that i could have done without considering it was such a tight running time it felt like oh this is a film about gentrification about race about class and then also about art <laughs> idiots <laughs> basically as well and i was like yeah maybe it goes to the self-awareness thing again maybe it's also about you know there, there's a definite thread there about the commodification of black pain Mm. and mm. and the sort of and, and I, so i wonder if there's a, an element of almost not quite self satire but certainly awareness yeah. of the pitfalls of the film that they're making perhaps i think uh, yeah that's sense. definitely and i know some people have written about this haven't they but the the the, the film itself is a little bit didactic like it's quite on the nose with what it talks mm. about particularly in the beginning and then later on an art critic literally says that about anthony's art right that it's too didactic and it's too on the nose in what it's tackling mm. so yeah it's true it's like nia de costa is kind of going yeah i know i know what this film's doing kind of thing sort of <laughs> confronting it yeah i'm two steps ahead of you guys at yeah. all times <laughs> yeah. get your criticism in first that's the that's the yeah. way to go <laughs> Just reminded me of like the film critic character in the uh, Shyamalan film that gets a, I mean, a nasty end as well. Yeah, right? cr- critics like, never really come out of films well. I guess that's <laughs> yeah. fair, you know. I think the only critic, at least that comes to mind, that has come out of a film well is the critic in Ratatouille. I mean, does he though? Mm. A little bit, maybe? He gets I a mean... lovely meal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell, tell you who comes out, who comes out well. Um, Oliver Platt in Chef. Because it's his review that sets Favs on the path to self-reinvention. And they mm. become friends at the end, buddies and partner up. So, you know, spoiler for Chef, by the way. Um, <laughs> we, mentioned, we mentioned Ratatouille and Chef, and now I'm hungry. A... I, I'm really hungry. We, we're, we're doing this at one o'clock, so it is now one thirty, and mm. I am really hungry. So if my stomach makes a cameo uh, in this <laughs> podcast, I can only apologize. I will try my best to noise gate the rumbling out. Like um, a Tony Todd cameo, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> so does this movie work Fundamentally, first and foremost, it is a horror film. So does it work enough as a horror film? I've seen it twice now. It's the second time when you know where the shocks are coming. You're right, the creeping sense of dread really does take over. It's beautifully framed, beautifully shot as well. A really lovely use of negative space all the way through. But does it work fundamentally as a horror film? And was that why the bathroom massacre may was maybe was played up to satisfy the the gorehounds? Yeah. Yeah, it's that kind of low-key horror, isn't it, I think, throughout. Mm. And I think it's creepy. I think it works really effectively. I actually think the new Candyman, the, the Candyman that we get for the majority of the film, that guy, is it Sherman? Sherman, Who has the yeah. sweets mm. and that kind of yeah. creepy mm. smile with his kind of mangled face. That, 
I thought was a really effective, scary Candyman and one that was entirely different to the kind of very grand, majestic, sexy, charismatic Tony Todd Candyman, right? I think they went for something much more inherently creepy this time around. Um, and I think he worked really well. I love Tony Todd, Mike, and I love the first Candyman, but... Uh, he is sexy, Chris. Oh, he is sexy? sexy. He yeah, is he sexy. Is. Of course he's he is. very handsome. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. He has a hook for a hand. He oh, throws a baby don't... onto a bonfire. I mean, How okay, is this I'm sexy? Not, I'm not saying that bit, but, you know, <laughs> let's not be ableist about it, but, like, he's a very... He's tall, he's, you know, handsome-looking, he's got that yeah. cool coat. I mean... Oh. I'm with Chris on this one. Look, I mean, this is a film, however, that casts, again, Ted Raimi as a sexy bad boy. So, uh, yes, uh, Exactly, exactly. And Sandra Berkeley as a love cheat. Yeah, well, he's I mean, yeah. in that cardigan. Anyway, we're talking more about Candyman than Candyman, yes, so yeah, obviously yeah. we can't do that. What are we doing? This isn't a Candyman spoiler special, you fools. This is a Candyman spoiler special. What are you doing? What um, happened to Candy.man, people? Candy.man. <laughs> We're taking our lives in our hands here. We had an agreement. (laughs) But talk of Tony Todd and talk of of Sherman, um, who I'm going to call Sherman Oaks because it makes me laugh. Sherman, the the Candyman in this movie, leads us on to one of the film's major revelations, reinventions, augmentations of the Candyman legend. So, you know, all the way through the first three movies, but again, we're focusing on the first one. uh, Daniel Robitaille is the Candyman. Mm. And this introduces this interesting wrinkle that there is actually a series of candy men that are I don't know whether they're vessels for Daniel Robitaille or whether he just you know he siphons himself into a new body every 27 years or so a bit like the uh, mm. the, the paper you're right Helen that was I thought really cool and I loved the animated sequence at the end which showed us some of the candy men that we oh, didn't get it. to see in the film yeah the puppetry I think is a fantastic idea and yeah. I know that sort of me and the cast has been talking about this a little bit this is a topic that is continually a point of discussion in sort of the black media culture in terms of how do we talk about trauma on screen without re-traumatizing the people watching it. And I think this is a really neat way to go about that because you do get the story, you do get the final points. It is retold from a different perspective, which I think is very interesting. And you get everything that you need to get, but it's not as violent and explicit as it could easily have been. I think that's very smart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it does make more explicit the the idea of this being a, a sort of a black Avenger is the wrong term. But do you know what I mean? There, there's an idea mm. of the Candyman being a retributive figure and being not quite a protector for the community, but certainly a part of the community and a, and a, a balance for the community. I mean, the fact that, you know, that ultimately this film... The you know he he maybe could have been saved he maybe could have been redeemed until a cop shot him. Mm-hmm. Maybe up until that point he he still could have got to hospital got a massive dose of antibiotics and been okay, but a cop shot him because of because that's mm-hmm. that's the what the urban lit myth that is the great fear of this moment that we're living in, and so that maybe inevitably was the result in this in this timeline. I love also that it's the idea of kind of passing it on and not silencing it right i guess that's mm. kind of what Candyman is as well he's kind of the whole say my name thing is let's not silence this pain this kind of century plus of of pain and uh 
I guess a lot of the film is actually about storytelling, isn't it? And kind of passing on mm. the legend, passing on the tale. And that's a lot, that's a big urban legend thing. That's a horror movie thing. That's even The Ring is kind of about that, right? About mm. like sort of passing on the tale or the myth or whatever. But it works really well, I think, on multiple levels with this, with sort of what it's tackling, doesn't it? Yeah, I love that idea that it's kind of different generations of Candyman and, you know, passing that legend on and the way that the legends change. So when they retell the story of what happened to Helen, they get it wrong. Like it's not actually yeah. what happened to Helen in the first film, right? Something happened to Helen? Helen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. It's okay. And I love that as well, that little touch. It's great, that idea of kind of urban myths evolving and changing and things. This, yeah. this is something that Chris has talked about for years. The fact that at the end of many, many horror movies, the victim or the survivor would be either locked up or put in a mental asylum or something. Like they, they mm-hmm. would look like a, either a crazy person or a criminal in most cases. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, this is a big one for me, and uh, even in this one, uh, and it, it all plays into you know this is a movie that begins and ends with police brutality and police corruption, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's really interesting that scene in in the car with the cop at the end with with Brianna, and he's basically going, well, this is the way that we say it happened, and uh, are you going to play ball? Are you going to be on board with that? Is is really dark, but also plays into that idea of survivors of a horror film. Basically, how do you tell people that what happened? Yeah, so Ash from Evil Dead 2, what happened here? We've just found a load of bodies in this cabin that you went to for a weekend away. Yeah, yeah, we were possessed by an evil force and attacked by kind of undead zombies. Yeah, but your DNA's literally all over the murder weapons, mate. You're going to prison for a long, long time. You know what I mean? It's, it feels yeah. it feels very much it's, it's, it's in that wheelhouse. Drop I the love chainsaw. That idea. I can't. <laughs> I can't. I, I've welded it to my hand. I, it's a long story. Um, but <laughs> do you guys believe in possessed hand? But with... with Chris um, from Get Out, what happened to you? Oh, you know, just some people trying to put my brain in, that's, in their body. That's why the end of Get Out is so terrifying. When you see, you know, that's yeah. when you see that cop car pull up, you're like, oh, Oh no! Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And but even then, the, like, even the then, best <laughs> friend in a horror movie yeah. of all time. <laughs> Honestly, watching that movie for the first time with a black audience was an experience I will never forget. Amazing, but all of this goes back as well to that that the closing line of the movie, which is the Tony Todd Candyman, Daniel Robitaille, finally mm-hmm. making a, a full appearance. There's some speculation we were discussing beforehand whether he does appear in the reflections of the various candy men that we see as Anthony walks past the uh, the cop car. I think he does, but certainly that last shot of him, majestic, slightly de-aged Tony Todd, is the first glimpse we get of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing he tells Brianna is tell everyone. So is this about... You know, essentially, so the the William Burke character wants to bring Candyman back for one reason and one reason only, which is to be this vessel of vengeance um, and essentially just unleashing it upon the general populace at large. But this Candyman now seems to have a slightly different agenda. But is he trying to propagate his myth? Is he trying to increase his power by therefore making people more aware of him? Is that what he wants at the end of the film? I think so, but it's not massively clear, is it? I don't think with Candyman. This is the one thing, and it's the same in the original film. It's like sometimes he kills people, sometimes he sort of possesses them or frames them. Like, it, like, And it's quite confusing as to why he does particular things to particular victims as well. But yeah, you get the feeling that he's 
he's using Anthony as like the next incarnation of Candyman, right? In order to keep the, the legend alive. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it is kind of confusing. And perhaps to tell everyone as well to Brienne to say what happened here rather than let the, the cops get ahead of you and set the narrative themselves. There might be a little element of that mm. also. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, like how successful will she be at that given that why would anyone believe that that's what happened? Yeah. Yeah, I know yeah. it looks like my artist boyfriend got too deep and and killed a bunch of people, but what actually happened was it was the, an undead spirit of vengeance with a hook for a hand, <laughs> who, yes, in death, my boyfriend somewhat resembles, but that's not who he was, except now he is, now that he's dead. You know, it's mm. it's a hard story. It was this other guy, this this the owner of the local laundromat. Basically, he dressed my boyfriend up as the Candyman, sawed his hand off, <laughs> drove a hook into the bloody stump, and then no, you can't ask the the laundromat owner why. And I stabbed him to death viciously. I, okay, I can see how this might look. <laughs> see, this is my thing. Every survivor of a horror film is going to go to prison. That's that's it. That's it. It's very, very sad. But uh, the, the alternate ending of Get Out, that's, that's what happens, mm. I believe. Does, yeah. Or doesn't he get shot or is he... Is he... No, 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 no he, goes, in prison. he goes to prison. Yeah, there's actually a final scene with him in, in prison. Yeah, which is pretty Ugh. bleak. <laughs> I'm glad they changed that. Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants that. Nobody wants that. What, what did we make of the, the Tony Toddiness of this? Because his name was linked with this movie right from the off. His face possibly appears, we're still not sure, in the first trailer. His voice certainly seems to in the first trailer, which came out well over a year ago. Whenever I wrote the feature for this, they were all very mum on Tony Todd. You know, like, what was it like working with Tony Todd? I can't say anything about mm-hmm. Tony Todd. What are you, why, why would you ask that question? <laughs> now, both of us are going to have to be killed. Um, you know, it was one of those situations. But we all knew he was going to be in it. But were you surprised by how little he was in it? I was surprised only because they did sort of spotlight him so much in that first trailer. Like, if they didn't do that, then I'm not sure how much of Tony Todd I would have gone into the movie expecting. Yeah. But knowing that, I did expect more from him. And it was surprised that they saved him largely for the final sort of 60 seconds. It's a very effective 60 seconds. But uh, but yeah, I did expect more of him. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I did not. I was entirely shocked. I uh, I stayed completely unsullied. Like I didn't read a single synopsis review, read a, a watch a single trailer. Um, Smart boy. Went into it completely blind. <laughs> yes. And very but, clever. And so yeah, really got me that final moment. I was like, oh, holy shit, <laughs> it's Tony Todd. <laughs> uh, I loved it. Yeah. Also, didn't know that the character of Anne Marie was going to be back and that she was Anthony's mum. I didn't. I didn't. All of that mm-hmm. took me by surprise, which was great. See, that was interesting because, yeah, I, I did know, and obviously they gave it away in the trailer, but, you know, again, talking yep. to everybody for the feature, I, I I knew that Anthony was the the baby from the first movie. And that that's another question I think we should, we should tackle as well. Like, did this need to be a direct sequel in that way? Uh, did you like that it, Anthony was the baby? Does that give it a sense of, you know, the Candyman has unfinished business? Did yeah. it give a sense of closing the circle a little bit? And uh, bringing back, of course, uh, uh, Vanessa Williams as well. Yeah, I do think there's a there's an element there, isn't there, of of kind of fate maybe playing a role. This idea that he was connected with Candyman from day one, um, maybe not quite, but pretty close. I thought there was an elegance to that storytelling as well, which which mm. I quite appreciated. I have to say. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I liked it. I liked the connection. I think it 
it did make you feel like, oh, is there some kind of connection here beyond just the fact that Anthony's called his name? There's another reason as to why this is happening to him. Mm. Yeah. Still slightly confusing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I, you know, we should talk as well about the film's relationship with, with race also. And the fact is that the first movie, the 1992 movie, takes place in Cabrini Green in the projects of Chicago. It is focused around a a black villain, if you will, or, you know, black monster. And, but it was written and directed by a white Brit. And when I spoke to Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta for, for this movie, they, you know, they love, Jordan Peele especially loves the first Candyman. You know, that's one of the reasons why he wanted to, to do this movie. But they felt that it was important for a black story to be told by black by a black writer and a black director and a black producer as well. And and Focus have mainly, uh, almost entirely, a black cast also. And it tackles this idea of black pain and black legacy and heroes and villains, which is interesting. It's interesting to me that William Burke is the de facto villain of the piece. There's mm-hmm. It's got so much to say. And there's there's lines all the way started through the film about the uh, the relationship between white people and black people and, and white people and black art. And there's a line from, oh, I can't remember who wrote, who says it now, but there's a line where they, which is, they love what we make, but not us. Yeah, that's Yaya to the critic, I think. That's, yeah, okay. And that is, that really reminded me of that amazing scene in Do the Right Thing, mm-hmm. the uh, confrontation between Mookie and John Turturro's character, whose name I've completely forgotten, but you know, he's John Turturro in that movie is basically playing a massive racist, yeah. but who loves black music and he loves black athletes. And Mookie cannot make him see the irony of that. He cannot make it. Why do you love this guy? But then if you saw him in the street, you would spit in his face and hate him. And there's an awful lot in this movie's mind. And I just wanted to, you know, delve into that and kind of get into that idea of a movie being driven by that idea of of black pain and, and black legacy yeah i think it does there's, um, there's a lot to unpack there sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll try and touch on some of it like i i think it does a pretty good job of you know having that yes be in the foreground to an extent but not sacrificing the film as a result of it i know that there's been some readings of the film that has called it sort of you know very very on the nose and I think there are a couple of moments where, you know, you might have a good point that as much as that line you're talking about did resonate for me, I can imagine it being, okay, that's you know, very sort of on the nose telling me the themes of the film type thing. But like, mm. for the most part, it really, really, really worked for me. It didn't take me out of the film. I was shocked in that sort of final bit with the conclusion of them shooting Anthony. But when I sort of you know, took a second to think about it sort of in the moment, it's like, of course, that was always sort of how this was going to end. And it felt obviously very relevant to uh, everything going on in the real world right now with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's part of the reason why I love the legacy theme of it all. Um, because when uh, these sort of, you know, real life black men and women die, that is sort of what they become. In a certain sense, it reminded me of some of the things that Queen and Slim was playing with. Yeah. A little bit, so yeah. For me, it it, it mostly worked. That that also plays in the idea, doesn't it? One of the you know the Queen of Slim thing of 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 legacy of becoming famous slash infamous and right. becoming well known enough to become martyrs in in a way also. And I guess you could see you know Sherman who's innocent, and that's the that's one of the the the, uh, the things the film goes out of its way to say is that Sherman is innocent, and then after death 
becomes something else and is yeah. then perhaps used as a as a as a vessel for Daniel Robitaille. Mm. The thing I the thing I couldn't and this is secondary to what we're talking about here. I'll, I'll come back to that. But the thing I couldn't figure out about Sherman is how much he resembled the Candyman in look before he was Candyman. If that makes sense. Does he, so whenever whenever young William encounters him, he's wearing a similar coat. He's got the hook for a hand, and but he's not Candyman at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I think. It's interesting because I, I noticed this throughout the film, but the Anthony's apartment and just what the color scheme is doing there in terms of matching the colors of Candyman, that sort of gradually changes over the film. So I imagine that uh, for all the other Candyman, as they were going through their metamorphosis, that's just something that was part of it in terms of how they got to the you know end garb, the costume, if you will. Of, of oh, that's what Candyman was. Yeah, I so like that. That, that. That's how I read it. I kind of thought of it as that this was, in some ways, the the look and vibe of Candyman that made it famous, almost. So before that, there were Candymen, but maybe they didn't look like what we all think of as Candyman now. And the, the name Candyman as well, right? Like, doesn't really link to... Tony Todd's character. I mean, apart from the honey, I suppose it doesn't really it doesn't really relate to Tony Todd's character. Whereas this guy was literally a candy man, right? So it kind of feels like (laughs) did this man made out of candy? (laughs) Yeah, basically. I mean, candy just drops whenever he's around. But uh, yeah, that sounds fun. It's not. But I think it's the way that the, again, like the way the myth and the the icon has kind of like merged and changed depending on the different people that have kind of taken it on over the years. I mm. thought it was quite a clever way of kind of putting that in. I love that idea, by the way, of all the previous candy men going through the same metamorphosis that Anthony is going through. I love yeah. that. It's the uh, evolution of horror, if you will. Hey? Oh, <laughs> hello. Hello. Here we go. Here we go. We do have some listener questions as well, which mm. I want to get to very, very quickly. But uh, I do want to talk about the end, the very end, because that is startling. That's a startling statement to put on screen, which is the end of the movie is a black character, a black anti-hero, if you will, blowing away a bunch of cops. And in the current climate, as as Amon said, post-Black Lives Matter, post-George Floyd, it's loaded with intent and and meaning. It was I was stunned to see that imagery put on screen. Yeah, it goes back to sort of uh, what I was touching on earlier. Yeah, police brutality is something which is very much at the heart of this film, and it's another reason why it's important that a black person, a black woman, got to tell the story. It's important to be tell these stories through black lenses, and yeah, it also sort of really resonated with, with me as well. Very powerful. There, there's maybe also an element of the Candyman changing over time. And, you know, there, there was a real sense of anger and injustice in the story of Daniel Robitaille at the beginning. Mm. With, with Sherman, there's a sense that he's almost innocent, almost not in the sense that they're not innocent otherwise, but like he, he, he had an innocence to him. He, he seemed to have mental issues, which meant that he was not perhaps fully there upstairs. And and so there was a kind of almost a childlike quality to him. Mm-hmm. And so there was maybe a sense that he was just, there was not much thought or will behind it. Maybe the idea is that Anthony has a little bit more will, a bit more of that anger, a little bit more of that consciousness that Daniel Robitaille had, that maybe, you know, there's there's an element of, of choosing to strike back, choosing to go after the people who have wronged you here in that moment with the police and not 
just seeking out innocent victims just to, to scatter your anger. That would make more sense in terms of what's happening with the ending because Brianna is spared mm. in sort of other versions of Candyman when he is summoned, then everyone sort of in the vicinity is at risk. Better run. Yeah. Mm. But Brianna survives and if yeah, your 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 reading would make sense as to why why that would be the case. Yeah. And he obviously wants to use her to spread the to spread the word as well. But yeah, there's there's a couple of things from that I wanted to, to talk about a, a little bit also. I, I think that the film does a really interesting thing. Earlier on, we were talking about Anthony being the protagonist, and, and he is, of course he is. Mm. But the film does a really interesting thing, which is about halfway through, I think it switches protagonists. Yeah. Uh, and so it switches to Brianna. And her story becomes really locked into it. And there's a really, there's a thread I can't quite put my finger on why it's, there and what it's what it means to in relation to the larger story which is we see several glimpses that her dad committed suicide and she was there and she saw that happening i think it's about she didn't sort of act enough in that moment in terms of stopping her dad or trying to talk her dad out of what he did and i think she sort of you know remembers that and puts all that determination into trying to free anthony from what he is going through that is how sort of I've read uh, that flashback and how it related to her. It's, it's, it's another thing that I wanted sort of more of, because I, I like the fact that we're switching perspectives, but still on the balance of things, I would say Anthony gets a lot more time and I think could have done with at least a couple more scenes mm. of Brianna and sort of her arc and how it related to the wider story. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, it was a bit... I, I could have done with more of that as well. And was it saying something to do with the relationship between art as well? Like, because wasn't it something to do with she says a line, something about the art is sort of what killed him or something as well when she's talking about her dad or something like that. He seems to be like a painter, that. doesn't he? Yeah. 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 Um, and I suppose that's interesting that then she goes into what she does and gets into a relationship with a, again, a kind of tortured artist in a way. Um, but yeah, maybe that, like you said, Amon, maybe that feeling of like kind of wanting to save him in that regard that she wasn't able to do first time around. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and it also maybe feeds into her resentment at that curator who, you know, she thinks she's there for a job. She thinks she's there for a professional opportunity. But the woman seems to have this ghoulish desire to to tap into her pain and, and Anthony's pain and Anthony's story. And mm. there's there's a real creepy <laughs> element of that and this this tying in this again it's the it's the usurping of of pain uh for artistic kind of and monetary gain um mm. even though that's a black woman but she's very clearly operating in a in a white space at that point yeah even anthony whenever he first hears the murder very well done yeah. very gory murder i really like those two murders yeah, yeah it's good murders folks um <laughs> the the uh, art gallery owner and his Girlfriend, intern, 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 girlfriend. intern slash yeah. girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. Um, after that, he's like, "Ooh, they said my name. Ooh, <laughs> so I'm, good. I'm famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love that. Really you should do a podcast. Honestly, Honestly <laughs> this 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 film has ruined Destiny's Child. Say my name for me. <laughs> Say it ain't so. Just like, Come. just like us ruined. I got five on it. Lunas. This is, is just like why these are great songs. Leave the bangers alone. Horror. Uh, you know what I'm saying. Um, I, I have a question though. In 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 the final scene when she summons Candyman in the cop car, am I right yeah. in saying she only says his name four times? This is exactly yeah. what I wanted to say. Right. This, is, this is one of the things I wanted to ask about because we I promised we would talk about the rules of the candy yeah. man and we have not. <laughs> we must talk about this. And is it because the, the policeman says it once and so therefore they between them have summoned but, him? 
But I thought the rules were that there had to be intention. Maybe her intention is enough along with his one mention of the name. But there, 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 has, there seems to be... So again, getting back to mens rea, which is, you know is one of my favourite oh, subjects. Jesus Guilty Christ. mind, right? The, the mental element of a crime, right? You have to mean it. Yeah. You can't just do the action. Like if you're sleepwalking and you kill somebody, you're not actually guilty of murder. You're just like manslaughter or whatever. Anyway. These rules sound like they were written by someone who killed someone and then pretended they were sleepwalking. Well, interestingly, there is, a, there is a theory that difficult cases make bad laws. So it is probably where there was an immensely immensely sympathetic person who genuinely did not have control of their body and the law tried to figure out a way to not send them to prison. That's probably the case. Yes, Chris. However, in this case, I think somebody has to be reckless to or intentional in summoning Mandy Can. So (laughs) you you have to... Somebody has to either be reckless to it or mean to do it. This is going to be a very difficult case to try, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, I know, well, honest, honest. All of them are beheaded or killed or whatever. Yeah, but like. Well, it's not just that, but like you put Brianna on the stand and she yeah. goes, no, it wasn't me, honest. It was it was the candy man. And you go, okay, Your Honor, I summon my next witness, the candy man. And then what they summon, <sighs> they speak five times into a mirror. Mr. Candyman, please, you're hooking the Bible and uh, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I do. It's like, oh no, he's terrifying. He's killing everybody. What's going on? It would this be. Was like, yeah. Huge mistake. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the, well, look, I think she's probably safe because she is visibly tied up in the back of a cop car. Like, she is <laughs> visibly not the person who killed all those people. Like, I feel I like they might believe her for that. But there's intent as well, because I think she's the first person we've seen across both candy mans uh, to really visibly want to summon him. But she only says it four times. So she only says it four times, but, but so, she's almost... So somebody... Yeah. So, so that doesn't work, right? Because then, if the cat, if the policeman is the reason that he was summoned, the policeman didn't do it with any intent. He just Maybe she had enough around. intent to make up for the policeman's lack of intent. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> checks and balances. Because yeah, I think, okay. I think, I, and I'm thinking about, but I think the opening scene of the first one with hot bad boy Ted Raimi and the babysitter, sexy Ted Raimi. <laughs> um, I think does he say it four times and then quit, and then she says it the fifth time? Yes, I think so. But I guess they so, both know what they're doing, right? They know yeah, what the so legend is. Yeah, so they're both is. reckless to it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. in this one, she is fully intentional and he's unaware. So maybe like five reckless equals four intentional plus one accidental. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Look, I'm spitballing here. I'm trying to make it work. <laughs> maybe maybe there's someone in the Candyman admin office going, well, yep, that, that checks out for me. Yeah, but she was, and she was with Anthony first time around when he actually did summon him, right? And, and, and yeah. shouts into the apartment window, you know, Candyman five times. So she's, she was part of that summoning, right? Because if you're with somebody that's summoning him, you also... But she was saying no, wasn't she? Yeah. No, yeah. she yeah, she was definitely saying no, because I remember saying no a <laughs> Along lot. Along with her. <laughs> but yeah, you just mind the, 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 the stuff with, that they do with reflections and mirrors mm. in this film yeah. is just incredible. I absolutely loved it. It's part of that, so that, that, that visual uh, eye that we were talking about with Nia Costa earlier. Yeah. Uh, which is just great. And it actually sort of factors into, you know, <laughs> my favorite death, which is, you know, a very weird statement to make. <laughs> when the camera's pulling back uh, from the window as the critic is getting yes. killed, 
I thought that was mm. beautifully done. Especially the, the streak of blood that, that follows yes. her across the, the window. Yeah. Uh, I the really pain, wish they hadn't right? given that away in the trailer. Yeah. yeah. Also, really like that is one of the very fancy modernist buildings in Chicago. I think on one of the canals that you see in the, or the river, that you see in the Dark Knight and etc. Like, how much money do they think critics have? I don't, <laughs> what? Oh, is that the movie you were talking about? <laughs> No, it's not actually. No, the, the, the no, no. You were saying on, a couple of weeks ago on Twitter there was you've just seen a movie that vastly overestimates how much a critic makes. Oh yeah, they, they, <laughs> I think it might have been it. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't think which movie you were talking about. Maybe it's maybe it's art critics. You know, maybe we're all in the wrong medium. Maybe we are in the yeah. wrong field, or maybe she is just like a trust fund baby, and you know. But like, <laughs> it, it is one of those things where you're watching it going. That's not my lifestyle. I, I, you know, I, I, I can afford maybe some of the art books that she has. I, I cannot afford that apartment. Mm-mm, not going to happen. Yeah. The word you're looking for, Helen, is yet. <laughs> Any day now. Any day now. Any day. Fat stacks of Benjamins coming our way. <laughs> Any day now. Uh, but yeah, the rules of the Candyman, I would say, are inconsistent. They're inconsistent about what he does when he is summoned. Sometimes mm. he kills people right away. Sometimes he takes his sweet time. Doesn't do it with Helen and Bernadette in the first movie. Just kind of <laughs> stalks around making little doe-eyed moon face at Helen for a bit going, ooh, I like her. And then that tends to be what happens. Where in this movie, it's like instant. I love those scenes, by the way. I, I kind of wish there were more of them. I thought the scene in the bathroom was great. Uh, I really, really like that opening kill. The way that you see a Candyman it just appear really quickly in a reflection. And, and I know this makes me sound like a terrible person, but slice that, that lady's throat and then kill the other guy. Really, really well done. Uh, lovely sense yeah. of style uh, as well. <laughs> You're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> Completely agree, Chris. <laughs> what can I say? What can I say? But the rules are inconsistent. We don't know what happens if the Candyman eats after midnight. We don't know if, what happens if you get him wet. They need to explore this in any sequel. Maybe I'm mixing up my monsters. <laughs> really, you think? <laughs> um, and then we got some just a couple of listener questions. But before we get into that, just real quick, I'm slightly disappointed that they didn't make more of Anthony's art. I thought it was a really nice idea that he would literally have a piece called, say, his name or say my name. I can't remember what it was called. Heisenberg Meitsu. Uh, and it just seemed unrealistic to me that you would have an exhibition like that with a mirror challenging people to say Candyman five times and they wouldn't do it. I thought initially it was going to be like a spate of mm. people doing it and it was going to like become mm. a sort of infection going across Chicago. But it, it didn't go down that route. Yeah, so literally only one person who was at that show tried it. Yeah. The girl in the bathroom. And not, even um, then, not Len. She waits no, until she goes to school. Wait until she goes home. So she can kill her friends. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I kind of thought the same about that exhibit because I feel like people do interact with art that way. I, I feel like it would be pretty normal to take up that challenge. Hooray for all those smart people <laughs> in that gallery. Maybe they were all like Amon. <laughs> One can only yeah, hope. Yeah, again, it's just the white teenage girl, right, that that was uh, stupid enough to do it. Yeah. The brother's boyfriend was trying it as well. Mm. Yeah. Yes, he was. And then and then obviously the intern girl does it, doesn't she? Yeah. But yeah. Shut yeah. that shit down right away. I would <laughs> never do it. No, no. I'll say Beetlejuice three times. Anybody in my family tries that. <laughs> no. You same boat ain't got nothing on me. I'll be running. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> uh, Amazing. Can right. you maybe try that for the next Olympics? It's, it's only in three years' time. 
<laughs> I just need the proper motivation. That's all. I will. I will break that record if I'm properly motivated. Better believe me. And he's a he's a bit of an unsung contender. This Amon woman as we start the 100 meters final. Oh wait, someone said Candyman five times. He's running really fast. Oh my god, he's breaking the world record. <laughs> he's still going. Someone chasing him with a bathroom mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Say it. He's, now, he's broken a 100 meter record. He's broken a 200 meter record. Oh my God. Now the 400 meter record. He's now out of the stadium. This is huge. <laughs> Let's have some listener questions, shall we? So here's one from at Ode underscore Ollie. All people sliding into my DMs on Twitter. Uh, so thank you for that. If there are sequels to this, do you think the previous Candymen, other than Sherman and Daniel, will be explored more other than the puppet depiction we saw during the credits? Yeah, amazing credits as mm. well. Everybody sat there just yeah. like gobsmacked throughout and there was barely a noise in the cinema. Yeah. Um, maybe. I'm not sure what that would add. I think what we'll see next time is just is just if, if there is a sequel, I think we'll just see Anthony as as the Candyman. Can I ask just a question that's thrown out by the end of the first Candyman? Where obviously Helen appears. Where she's uh, invoked by mm. Santa Berkeley. Dastardly Santa Berkeley. Do you think they might do something with that? You know, the idea of saying Helen five times into a mirror. Um, Which you do every morning, of course. Mm, yeah. Every single morning. <laughs> every single Helen! Helen! <laughs> and then you, you appear. That's the only way I can get you to appear in the podcast. Yeah, it's true. So, uh, do we think that, you know, they might do something with that? Maybe the idea that maybe Brianna could be Candy Woman? I don't think so. The, the, the Helen thing, I don't think so. Now that they have refocused it in this way, I don't think it would make sense to go from a very sort of, no all black led thing back to Helen mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what happens at the end of the- but more the idea that it doesn't have to be a man that it you know like Helen becomes the vengeful spirit at the end of the first movie not Daniel Robitaille and that that's mm. interesting to me that the torch could be passed on in a different way I wonder if that's something they might they yeah, might be I, able to I'm, explore I'm kind of I think I mostly agree with Amon I think they've deliberately refocused on Candyman as a as a, as a lineage, and they've left, they've specifically left Helen out of that lineage. They specifically have not referred to mm-hmm. any of that bit of the ending. So I think there is a conscious decision to focus on this series of men. True. And also, I guess Candyman has brand recognition factor where you go see a film called Candyman, you may not go see a film called Helen. Hey. And that's no hey. offense, Helen. I'll have you know, I went to see a show at the Globe a few years ago just because it was called Helen. And it was Greek, so I assumed it was going to be a tragedy, and it turned out to be a fantastic comedy, and I really enjoyed it. So well done. Oh, there you go. That's good stuff. Uh, Searches for shows called Amon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, here is a question from at Matt Bonavia. If you and the other pod guests were also candy men, what sweet or chocolate would you throw in the floor for the most dramatic effect? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Oh. <laughs> candy floss. <laughs> Just float gently to the ground. <laughs> Soundlessly. Tangy wine gums is sort of my favourite my favourite sweet of choice. But they also wouldn't make much noise. One. I think you need like a... Maybe maybe Starburst. I like Starburst Again, well. not much noise. They're too, they're too soft. You need something hard that's going to crack. Because <laughs> I don't want to kill people. I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> the idea is, is, is surely having like the sound of a crack on the floor like to make somebody turn around and go, oh, it's the like a, like a Werther's original. Or something, like a Werther's know. original. <laughs> oh my <Yeah>. God. <laughs> Strikes fear into that. <laughs> Oh my God. Just a very sound of a Weathers original. Oh no. It's an old granddad. A giant sheet of peanut brittle just crashing everywhere. 
Well, yeah, that would strike fear in the people who have allergies to peanuts. Well, exactly. You see, it works on two levels. <laughs> oh, Amon? I, 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 have, I have allergies to peanuts. So just, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Right, so you see, it's already <laughs> claimed one victim. No, I, I wouldn't pick it up because I'd smell the peanut. I mean, I, no, I wouldn't even look in them. I would just run. <laughs> Be like Martin Short and pure luck. Um, um, No, it's a serious energy, people. We should make fun. You're a monster. Thank you, Chris. My um, ex-girlfriend had a severe allergy to peanut. Anyway, I'd go for the alphabet sweets, but I would throw them down in such a way to spell Candyman is behind you. It would take a while, but... Throwing, not so much as placing, I feel like. I'd lovingly place on the ground. And then, because I wouldn't make any noise, because I would have placed it on the ground, I would then have to do a loud cough. (laughs) Oh, no. You'd be a very bad candy man. (laughs) You'd be a terrible candy man. (laughs) Oh, my word. Um... At Henderson underscore X, if you haven't seen the original Candyman, I thought you can keep up and appreciate 90% of the film. Yes. But certain key moments, I felt you needed that knowledge of what came before. Does the pod, that's us, think you can go in not having seen the previous film or should people go after a catch-up first viewing? I, I had not seen it in probably 20 years and I remembered that there was a guy with a hook for a hand. That's a genuinely about all I remembered. And it was fine. I think the film clues you in well. I think, you know, if you if you have a an actual memory that is better than mine, you will probably get more of that texture earlier. You'll see certain things coming that I was like, what? He's the baby? <laughs> um, but uh, but I don't think it's necessary at all. I think the, f- the film walked a really fine line in giving you just enough exposition without banging on about it, basically. Yeah, not necessary, but it will augment your viewing experience Yeah, were you to watch it beforehand. At Cantona's Ghost, does this film satisfyingly address the political issues it should? Or do you think it should be more or less overt when engaging the social matters involved with the story? I think it was I think it was spot on, really. I just could have done with more of it. Like like we said, like I think it's tackling such big subject matter. Could have spent a little bit more time fleshing some of it out a bit. But I kind of loved all of that. Fleshing out and stripping the flesh. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah. And it's interesting that the gentrification angle is there in the 92 film as well and has only gotten bigger so they're not they're not bringing in things that didn't exist they're not you know inventing new things that that are, and kind of grafting them onto this story it's very much developing and deepening what was there but taking it from the perspective of as you say you know a, a black writer a black director a black producer and and sort mm. of actually kind of giving it a bit more maybe resonance than it, it had at that time you don't have to delve too deep to see what the themes of the movie are and how they relate to what's going on in the world today. As I said previously, I think they do a good job of infusing that into the narrative without it taking away from the story, which is something you know that we have come to expect from any project that has Jordan Peele's name on it. He's notorious for doing that. And this is another film uh, that just backs that up. That's why yeah. I think also it shouldn't have any more sequels, at least for a while, because I think it's it's telling a story about right now and so many things. And it's not a monster movie, slasher movie in that regard. I think that's what the, the, the two sequels that everyone has, has ignored got wrong, is that they weren't telling a story about race or gentrification or anything else. They were actually being about a slasher monster killing people and they didn't really work. No one really cared. I think what's the what's really good about the original and this new one is that they're telling such big, important, interesting stories 
Um, and I think maybe you can't just keep telling that story over and over again. Maybe you've got to wait a few more years until there's something worth sort of talking about again, you know, for a Candyman story. I think there's probably some angles you could still get into in terms of, I don't know, racist town planning, for example. I mean, they, they touch on that with gentrification, but, you know, there are mm. lots and lots of issues in that. The way that roads are laid is often racist. <laughs> That's actually mentioned in the in the original, but um, they, they literally used to uh, zone off black areas with highways and build highways through black areas and make a sort of wrong side of town and right side of town, that kind of thing. They used to actually make the bridges too low for buses to get to certain beaches so that only people with cars would go to those beaches. So they became de facto white beaches. Wow. You know, things like this, like wow. there's crazy, crazy issues that you would never necessarily be aware of if you don't live in those communities and if you because the mainstream media didn't necessarily report on this stuff but there's loads of areas you could look into that and I know that all sounds quite dry and time plenary but like there are you know there's other contemporary issues that a, a Candyman film might root itself in if this was if this took that stuff from the art world maybe you could do something similarly granular next time. I quite like the idea that you could do Candyman sequels like kind of Seasons of the Wire, where it's like we've done the journalists, we've done yeah. the artists, and like you can flesh out the the, the story of Chicago, right? In that sort of yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, please. Uh, we'll see what happens with sequels. My last question to you guys. Uh, we did have a question from Stuart Iverson about, do we feel the film balanced Candyman as a figure of, to massively simplify it, his words, uh, Black Revenge, and also the murderous big bad who pops up in Murderous Teens, who says name, for me, those two things never sat right together, says Stuart. Yeah, I do I do think there is that difficulty in squaring, in, in making Candyman a sort of, not hero, but like we said, like Avenger or a figure of retribution, is that he's not necessarily going after the most guilty people mm. in, in that retribution. But, but then, like I say, maybe that's the idea of this film. Maybe this film is sort of redirecting Candyman against people who are more responsible for injustice. Yeah. Now, if there is that intent uh, behind it, as you so wonderfully explained earlier, Helen, but then that would make any future candy dot men in this series be very, very interesting to yeah. see going forward. I think they just need to do that for the, for the sequel. They should just call all sequels Candyman, just to really fuck things up. But <laughs> you could go Candyman, you could go Candyman, you could go Candy Woman, you could, you could do all kinds of things. There'd be almost limitless mm -hmm. opportunities ahead. Really, really good way to set the vibe from the opening credits with the Candyman song, the Warped Candyman yes. song, along with like the universal mm. reverse credits and everything else that just really immediately put you into that yeah, world. Yes, great. Indeed. Great. Uh, so cool. And good use of bees as well. So I've got to ask you all, have you ever been stung by a bee? That's my last question. I don't know if I was stung by a bee or something else. It was painful. I did not like it. I tried to respect bees and, mm. you know, respect their privacy and leave them to their important work of maintaining the environment. Bees shouldn't be the, the villains. Hornets, now, there we can have a discussion, but bees are our friends. <laughs> All right, Michael Caine Friend, and Swarm. Friends is a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I've been stung by a bee. And hopefully, long may that continue, please. Um, yeah. yeah. 
I don't, I don't want to know what that feels like. Never been stung by a bee, never been stung by a wasp. Uh, if I see a wasp, you know, you think uh, a mom might be running fast at 100 meters final in three years' time, I would outstrip him. Wow, this is going to be a really exciting I, race. Wow. I would be a blur. It would be a Chris Hewitt-shaped hole in the stadium. Um, <laughs> Chris, I, I uh, had, uh, this, I've got a horrible story for you. This year I stayed in a, um Airbnb, it was like a little wooden cabin. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, that's not the end of the story. There's more. Okay. And that's the end. <laughs> Uh, and I could just hear this scratching like this weird sort of scratching noise going on above me uh, all night and it turned out there was a wasp's nest literally right above me in the beams and they were and they were scratching their way through to to come down no uh, and yeah that was it I was out of there yeah 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 got a refund and we were out there but uh it was absolutely the stuff of nightmares for me yeah did you get stunned no actually thankfully i don't know how that didn't happen but they didn't make their way in but it was only when we went outside and then we saw there was like 200 wasps on the roof of this little my life oh my god um i'm not sure i'm not sure i've ever shared this story before in the podcast so this might this might be a premiere outing this is it this is a cracker So uh, years ago, this is well, 12, 13 years ago, I was going to the offices of Marvel in LA to have a chat with Kevin Feige. And I got a cab there. And this was, they're they're now part of the the Disney, they've been, you know, swallowed into the Disney hive uh, over there in Burbank. But this was back in the days when they were just you wouldn't know it was Marvel. You wouldn't know that you know Marvel Studios was sequestered there. It was just a kind of random routine building, and uh, I got I got outside. <laughs> I got I got to the I got to the cab. I paid the driver, opened the door, got out, slammed the door, and then a massive beehive oh <laughs> that was in the the uh, the tree above the the taxi suddenly just jolted out of the tree by the momentum of me slamming the door and this giant hive of bees just plunk onto the car in front of me oh, and the taxi wow. driver realised what was happening he was like wind this window up really really quickly and it took me <laughs> seconds to realise what you know, it was like delayed reaction and then they started coming for me and so I had to oh, run to the man. door so the Marvel office is going help let me in there are bees send the walls wow. <laughs> but luckily I did not get stung I did not get stung right. But um, oh, but yeah, that is a miracle. Nearly killed by bees. Going to see Kevin Feige. Mm. What a way to do it! What a way to <laughs> go! Yeah, we get my dying breath. Going, oh, but yes, please just tell me who's directing the Hulk movie. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, would have been well worth it. Well worth it. Anyway, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, um, tell everyone, tell everyone, folks, uh, to subscribe to the Empire Podcast Spoiler Specials. You never know what you're going to hear. That is it. That is it for our Candyman Spoiler Special. Uh, It's been a lot of fun. Hope you guys have enjoyed it as well. Thank you, as ever, for subscribing to the Spoiler Specials. Uh, Your support really does mean a lot. Keep me over the next one. I know what the next one is. The next one is uh, a little film I like to call Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings with the director, Destin Daniel Cretton. Oh, yes, indeed, folks. That is going to be a belter. Haven't recorded it yet, but it's going to be a belter. Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such lethal cunning squadcast names. You've already heard his squadcast name. It is simply Nope, a Mon Woman. Peace. Peace be unto you, my friend. It is goodbye from B, my victim. That's a B pun the likes of which you haven't seen since Jerry Seinfeld's B movie, Mike Munzer. <laughs> Thank you for having me. 
It's been a pleasure, Mike. It's been a pleasure. It is goodbye from Helen Lyle O'Hara. Helen O'Hara. You always thought the L stood for Louise, but no. Ha ha. Revealed. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, anyway, toodaloo. Do you think Candyman liked Helen Lyle because he thought she was the heir to Tate and Lyle, Probably. the sugar factory? Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> he was just like, he was like, I'm the Candyman. You could hook me up with sugar. This is going to, I can see this is going to work. This is going to work. <laughs> Clearly not. Anyway, <clears throat> and it's goodbye for me. Heisenberg, 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 Heisenberg. Heisenberg. I actually ran out of space on my squadcast name. Uh, I am off to throw alphabet sweets on the ground until they spell I am Candyman. But don't worry. It's totally fine. I'm not an evil Candyman. Please don't be alarmed by the hook of my hand. Oh, no, they've gone. I'm going I'm to spell it out in sweets. It's going to take me ages. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. 